everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast, which is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As I said, this is a very special episode. I don't think that anything like this has ever been done before in podcasts. I call it a 60s jamboree. I've got seven incredible artists from the 1960s as my guests on this show. All of them have been previously a guest on the podcast, but now they're all here together. Let me introduce them to you. First off, we have Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey. A 60s jamboree just wouldn't be right without America's most famous radio personality. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, bravo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah give him an applause. <laughs> really good to be here. And the reason I'm here is because I'm surrounded with all my friends. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all these people that we have on the podcast. I know that. They're the poets. I'm the guy that has the megahorn. That's it. <laughs> Big megahorn for sure. All right, next up, Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys. This diamond ring doesn't shine for me anymore. And this diamond ring doesn't mean what it did before. So if you got someone whose love is true, let it shine for you. Gary and his band had seven consecutive top ten hits, starting with this diamond ring. Say hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. <laughs> oh, no. Hi, everybody. All right. Next up, Gary Puckett of Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Gary hit the top of the charts with Woman, Woman, Young Girl, and a bunch of other hits. Young girl, get out of my mind. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> we got a little bit of a concert there. And next up, Tommy Rowe, the father of bubblegum pop. Sweet little Sheila, you'll know her if you see her. Blue eyes and a ponytail. Tommy had number one hits with Sheila and Dizzy and a slew of others as well. How you doing, Tommy? I'm doing great, Robert. Good to be with you. And it's good to be with uh, some folks that I've admired and respected for so many years, all these great artists on the show today. And this is a firster. I, I tell you, this is the first time this has been done. I, I hope you're good at herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next, Joey D, who's the sartorial splendor of this group. <laughs> From Joey D and the Starlighters. Well, they got a new dance and it goes like this. Oh, you 
Joey had a massive international hit with the Peppermint Twist. I'm so happy to be here with my friends. I love all you people. And we've had a lot of gigs together. And Mark, good seeing you. And George, just first time I'm meeting you. How are you doing? Good. Fantastic. All right, next up, Mark Stein of the Villa Fudge. They took the Supremes hit, You Keep Me Hanging On. They slowed it down. They psychedelicized it, and it hit the top of the charts. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing really good, man. It's great to be here today. And it's awesome to uh, see all you guys still still rocking, still singing, still performing. So, uh, hey, man, it's been over a half a century of some great creativity. And, uh, hey, hello, everybody, and let's keep it going. All right. And last but not least, George Brunel of the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Good sense, ill sense, crippling mankind. Dead kings, many things I can define. Occasions, buzz, writings, brought to your mind. Incense and compliments, the color of time. Who cares for the games we choose? They had a number one hit with incense and peppermints a song that was released initially as the B-side of the Birdman of Alcatraz. What genius was responsible for that? <laughs> I have to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? The, it, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a radio DJ uh, named Johnny Fairchild that said, no, that's not the, that's not the beast. That's the A side in sense. And he goes, he said, Birdman of Alcatraz is that that's a, a novelty song. That's the B side. I'm playing, I'm playing incense and peppermint. That's and and he was of course, right. <laughs> and the rest is history. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the sixties jamboree. Thank you. Okay. I got to ask this question. You guys all made hits over 50 years ago. Did you ever think that they would last this long? Well, no, of course, I didn't think it was going to last this long because uh, in, in, the, in the 60s, when one of the Beatles were being interviewed, they said that they had a longevity of about three years. So, so that's what I figured I had, three years. But uh, now it's 59. <laughs> a few more than three. You know, I'll tell you something. I, I, I listen and I respect everybody's feelings here. Because I do what I do, I, I knew that you guys would be here with us 80 years later. I knew that. I had the guys, I had the audience reacting to me. You guys <laughs> were too busy making all the big bucks and doing all the stage shows and the recordings. right? But I knew that this was going to last a long time. And uh, uh, here we are. What? And how many years? How many years are we into this now? 60, 70, thereabouts. And it keeps on going. It gets stronger and stronger. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I tell you, when I turned 30, I thought I thought it was all over. I no. thought I, when I was 25, I thought, man, 30 is old. <laughs> I will be 81 years old in May and I'm doing gigs. I can't Good believe it. Good for you. <laughs> That's right. 
That's right. Good for you is right. Well, in 1963, I worked with the Beatles in Stockholm, Sweden. They were my opening act. Little did I know that wow. a year later with the British invasion, I'd be out of work. Wow. Well, wait a minute. Tommy's got a story like that, right? Tommy and Chris Montez worked together with the Beatles, too. Tell that story, Tommy. Chris and I actually met on the Sam Cooke tour in 1962. We both had big hits. Sheila was number one, and Let's Dance was the top five record. So they booked us in England, our own tour. Chris and I were headlining, and there was a featured act on our tour called The Beatles. Nobody knew who the hell The Beatles were in 1962. Ah, I love that story. And actually, they, they were actually a cover band. I mean, when they did the tour, most all of their songs in the show were covers of, of American hits, you know. Twist and Shout, Maybelline, it did a lot of Chuck Berry stuff. And then, of course, uh, after that, you know, the rest is history, as we like to say. The, I always told John, I said, John, you know, our tour is a springboard for your super career. You know that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't yeah. having much of that. But um, that was a real kickoff of, of, their, of their career, because after that, uh, they only opened for one other act, and that was Roy Orbison. And from that point on, they didn't need opening acts. Yeah. Brucey, tell that story about how you had the exclusives for the Beatles records and the guys would come up with the exclusive in a locked suitcase and you had to put it out as an exclusive and what the other radio stations were doing with them. Well, it was pretty wild. In those days, uh, they would tell me I couldn't play a record. I couldn't play this new Beatles exclusive that I had until nine o'clock. So they send up the record promoting guy and a security guard who had a, an attache case uh, attached to his wrist with a handcuff. And at 9 o'clock, they give me the Beatle record, and I played it. That first night when we played I Want to Hold Your Hand, I did it eight times. But And and then what happened, because of the power of the radio station, WA Beatle C, uh, as we're going to call it eventually, uh, they heard the song in 40 states at night, just before satellite radio or before streaming and uh, all the radio stations copied the song as I played it because the quality was good enough. They didn't care. They just had a Beatle exclusive. So the next day we got in the air guys. And I'm sure you remember this. I play uh, uh, please, please me, or I want to hold your hand. And I play exclusive cousin Brucey exclusive WABC exclusive every 10 seconds over the record. And we destroy your music. A lot of you were not happy with us, but the audience understood. That's what happened in those days. It was a battle, battle to keep the exclusivity. But there was no doubt that the men that we have, the people we have in this show, this podcast, this jamboree, would survive and very well survive everything else. And here we are today, and they're still doing it. Tommy's doing a show with me. In fact, I'm very excited. He were on the air with me. Not so long ago, Tommy Rowe. And uh, I said to you, uh, when, when's the last time you did a show? You know, blah. And he said, it's been a while. I said, how would you like to do a show? So, Tommy, you're going to be with me uh, uh, at the PNC Center, like so many of you have, right. coming up very soon. So I'm very excited about that. June 8th, so am I. I'm really excited about it. And we're putting our show together. We're going to be ready to rock, I tell you. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be very nice. And you know what uh, I was going to say? You know, Bob? These people are so active and so loved by this audience that there's never been a, a time down. Believe me, nobody remembers the time down. The British invasion stuff and 
things like that. Every one of them had a continuing, continuing career. And we love them. The the audience absolutely adores everybody on this panel today. 100%. Well, I tell you, I've worked with Gary many times. We've done a lot of shows together, and his band would back us up on the tours. And I remember one particular show we did in uh, Michigan. I don't know if you remember this, Gary, but we drove into the place. It was a big, you know, area. looked like a forest. And we got to the stage, and it was a nudist camp. Our agent had booked us in a nudist oh, camp. You remember God. that? Of course I do. That was one of those outstanding memories of my career, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, me too, you know, especially when I was getting paid by the boss and she's naked. Yeah. <laughs> Not the money. You know? <laughs> and, and remember when we, after the show, went to the merch table to sign things, we didn't know where to look. <laughs> I know. Oh, do, we look at, do we look at our pad or do we look in their eyes or where do we look? <laughs> well, well, you know, it wasn't a pretty sight anyway. Well, that, I, you know, after after working that gig, I know why they they uh, invented clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Gary Puckett, you told me a funny, funny story about your uniforms and how you got the guys to wear those uniforms and where you got them made as well. Why don't you tell the people this story again? <laughs> I remember those. Well, the uniforms. The uniforms were um, my my thought about having a uh, an identity, a visual identity, and and uh, um, I just kind of thought, with the business being as competitive as it is, that if if we had a look about us that would stop somebody and they would go, wait a minute, what's that? Uh, that might cause them to pick up the record and see what it sounds like. That is, if we could make a record and if we could have a hit record. But it turns out that that's how it worked out when we were working up in Seattle at a, a nightclub up there. Um, it occurred to me, I always had the interest in the Civil War history of the U.S. And I said, guys, I got it. We're going we're gonna to wear Civil, uh, Civil War outfits of the North. And I grew up in a place called the Yakima Valley. And in the southeast corner is Union Gap. And I just went, Union Soldier, Union Gap. It was that easy and that simple when it came to me. And the guys all thought it was the dumbest thing they ever heard. They laughed about it for days. Uh, we went from Seattle to Portland, worked in a topless club up there. Then we went from um, Portland to Vallejo, worked in another topless club. Hard for 24-year-old guys to keep their eyes on the audience when there's naked ladies dancing right next to you. <laughs> and um, then I took them to a place in uh, Los Angeles called Western Costume, which was where we rented one outfit because they were too expensive for us to afford. Took the boys then, went to Tijuana and had the outfits made. And uh, once the outfits were made, then it was all about taking pictures in the right places and putting a portfolio together which I took to all the record companies in Los Angeles, who mostly turned us down and said, well, that's nice, but it's not my bailiwick, so to speak. So uh, uh, at some point, I found a guy by the name of Jerry Fuller who had written a song for, actually for Sam Cooke, but Sam didn't want it. Ricky Nelson did, and it sold 6 million copies. Uh, or was it four? It was 4 million, I think, but it was Ricky Nelson's Traveling Man. Uh, and uh, Jerry said... Love it, love it, man. I, I I love what you're doing. Let me let's make a record. And he had a song in his hand called Woman Woman. Have you got cheating on your mind? So that was the beginning. What I love about that story in particular is the fact that his union 
army outfits were made in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. well, let me let me tell you something that's an interesting factor to that whole thing. Um, I said early in the conversation that I thought that it might have some impact on on the success of the group and the records. There was a guy in Columbus, Ohio, who was a Civil War historian. He was also a disc jockey program director on WCOL. And when he saw the record, he said, that is a, a, an incredible photo. What does the record sound like? So he played it, loved it, put it on his station. It went to number one. And that's when the uh, regional office of Columbia Records called me and said, do you know that you have a hit record in Columbus, Ohio? And I said, uh, no. And they said, well, we're going to bring you to Cleveland and we're going to promote this record now that we have a foothold in the market. So it was all a good thing that uh, the outfits happened. There are so many people I've had on this podcast that have told me the following story, that they put a record out, they couldn't get it played anywhere, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, some disc jockey, not somebody as high up as Cousin Brucey, played that record in the middle of nowhere, and it just started to roll from there. How many of you guys had that experience? Yeah, that's basically it. I guess we all had that experience. That happened with Sweet Pea. Uh, Sweet Pea was uh, being played on a station in Daytona, Florida during spring break. And it was number one on that station. And all the spring breakers went back home, went back north to Canada and North America. And um, none of the stations were playing the record. So they started requesting the record. And all of a sudden, that's how the record broke. I mean, just if it hadn't been for Daytona, Florida, that, that record would have never happened. Yeah, whatever happened to most requested record? You know, that was that was the way they climbed the charts back exactly. then. Exactly. Yeah. Robin, I want to give you a kudos for putting this uh, compilation together because we have Tommy Rowe and I, I guess, and the number one cheerleader for our music was Cousin Brucey and how we went up through Gary Puckett and then, and then uh, Gary Lewis and George and then we passed the baton on to Mark and, and it's, it's just a wonderful, it makes me feel real good that the, the music was carried on so faithfully and it, and it, uh, it made its uh, uh, different changes along the way and it's gotten better for some and worse for others. But I'll tell you what, I, I'm so happy to be, uh, i.e. A, a pioneer along, you know, with Tommy, we, we had our, our first hits together, and then Gary, and then Gary, and it, it's just amazing how this all came about. And then Mark Stein, you know, he's, what can I tell you? The guy's great. But Cousin Brucey made this all happen. He played all of our records. He did. From Palisades Park, when I did the show with him, because I'm a Jersey boy, and he came to Jersey, and, and he did his show there every week, and we just had a hell of a time. Cousin Bruce, he's the best. Well, listen, guys, guys, I didn't want this. This is exactly what I said to the boss here. I didn't want this to happen. Mark, I didn't want this to happen. We, By the way, we owe you a lot. You were a connection, which I'll explain in a couple of months. You help us move this whole thing on. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say, gee, that's great. I love I love the, the Kodus, and I love all the, the uh, salutes and everything. But honestly... Really, the bottom line is, if it wasn't for you guys, and I'm not being, not being, you know, just being a wise guy here. If it wasn't for you guys, 
what would I be doing? Doing pimple commercials and then doing station breaks. You you gave us you gave you gave us the poetry. You gave us the music. You gave us the feeling of love. What 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 we play on the air? What I play on the air? What I do? And I'm very lucky to have you once again. Is I play life. You have given us the reflection of life. I'm the mirror. I'm the reflector. You guys put the image in there. And that's where the that's where the thank yous go, not to me, but to you. The audience listens to me. I'm very lucky I'm a bridge. But I remember that, and I appreciate that. You people are so amazing. Where these ideas come from, and I've had so many of you on shows. I always want to know, where did you get that idea? How do you write these songs? Where does the idea come from? And you're just a bunch, you're just so talented and so so brilliant. The Garys, the Joeys, the Marks, everybody, everybody where that we were involved with. Thank you, thank you on behalf of this audience. But the audience, that's where it goes to, Mark. Thanks for giving us the exposure, Matt, to uh, let our creativity be heard by the public. So without you, we wouldn't be here to begin with. We're lucky that the technology. Technology went further because there was a call for distribution and there was a call for what you guys were doing. You were creating such great music. Things were changing. Technology changed to cover it, right? Distribution like that I do, Cousin Brucey does, and said I'm still doing, is there because of you. You gave us the product. You are the product. You're the supermarket. I have the basket. Well, we're an inflationary time, sir. I mean that, Tommy. I mean it. If I could just say, Brucey, you take you need to take some of the glory because without you, you chose to play our music, right. and without you choosing to play it, uh, we wouldn't have the success that we have. So that's why the guys give you the glory. So accept. Uh, thank you. I feel like I'm the audience, and I just listen to your music, and I say, "We're gonna love that." Notice, I said, "We, we being the audience, are gonna love what you've given us." And uh, but you you guys are so special. You are so special, and thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you do. Um, I'm just proud, so proud to call you all friends. And we've appeared places together. And I stand on the wings and I listen, and I always want to sing with you. But you always tell me I sing in the key of J. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're the best. So let me ask you guys this. I had John Lodge from the Moody Blues on the show a while ago. And he said that when he was 19, his friend said to him, this is great, but what are you going to do when you're 21? So I'm just curious. What did all you guys think that you were going to do if the music didn't work out for you? For me, I was supposed to go to art school. And my mom had me enrolled at Chenard Art School. And our band was really pretty young when we made it. We I, I just graduated high school in June of 1967 and the and incense and peppermint started climbing the charts. And I mean it's what we were trying to do, but we didn't really think it would happen. And it did in a big way. And I told my mom, well, I'm not going to go to college. And she goes, oh yeah, you are. You're you're not going on tour. And I said, oh, I'm going on tour. I'm 18. I can do whatever I want. And she goes, Oh, boy. Oh, boy. She, she really wanted me to go to art school and become a a, a commercial artist. So uh, I didn't. <laughs> That's interesting. When I was in high school, I had a when I graduated, I had a, 
an art scholarship to the Atlanta Art Institute. So I was kind of in the same, same ballpark. But uh, I also had a band. <laughs> yeah. And we played, we played fraternity parties at University of Georgia and Georgia Tech. And we used to do a lot of Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker. If you can believe, I used to sing those kind of songs. I really tried to do it. All and, right, Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I love it. So anyway, that, that was the kickoff for me. But actually, you know, when I when Sheila became a hit, I, I didn't know anything about the business. I my manager called and called me into the office and the rec I knew the record was out, but I didn't hear it on the radio. And he said, look. Tommy, you got to consider quitting your job at General Electric because your record's going up the charts. It's like 42 with a bullet. Well, I, I didn't even know what a bullet meant, right? So he convinces me that the record's going to be a hit, and I end up quitting my job so he can book me and, and do some shows, you know? Well, I'm such a greenhorn. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I'm, I'm doing shows with pickup bands, right? So I have to go in and rehearse the band and then do the show that night and they pay you, as Joey remembers in those days, they paid us in cash, right, Joey? Always got paid in cash. And I would end up collecting like five or $6,000 cash after a few dates. And I used to put the cash in my suitcase and check it on the airplane. Honest to God, I never lost a dollar. <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you, if you think about doing something like that today, there's no way you could do something like today. It was an innocent time and very spontaneous. And we kind of learned as we went along. I had a binary career at the time. I, I was going to be a history and English teacher. And I went to school for two years. And to, to make some money, I put a band together. I picked up the alto saxophone. I played four notes and I started a band. And while I'm going to school, I took a hiatus for one year. And I said to my mother, I'll go back to school and I'll get my degree, mom. I promise you. And I'll become a, a school teacher or professor of English and, and history. And she said, you'll never go back. And I said, I promise you one year and I will go, if I don't get uh, any kind of success, I will quit the music business and I'll go back to school. Within that year, I had the peppermint twist out. And when, when we get done here, I'm gonna write a song, Incense and Peppermint Twist. There you go. <laughs> 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 love it. <laughs> I'm looking at you guys. I I just I'm in love with all of you. I'm enamored with each and every one of you. You're all heroes of mine. Thank you. I feel the same way. <laughs> it's Mark. Can I? Is Gary Puppet there? Can you hear me? I can hear you, Mark. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, man. Uh, I'm going back to '67, probably. Yeah, or '68. Well, 68, we, we did a TV show in Detroit, and you guys were on the show with Vanilla Fudge. I don't know if you remember. I remember seeing you guys, you know, with all the Confederate uniforms on, and I just remember that it was, it was such an exciting time. I don't know if you remember. Probably not. But, uh, I don't remember that particular show, but I remember being totally impressed and becoming a big fan of the Vanilla Fudge, for that's for sure, because you guys Oh, cool. Thanks. Well, we always called you the white Johnny Mathis, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Not really. I mean, you, your voice was constantly on the radio. Oh, thank you. Everywhere. All those great songs. I mean, you had the greatest, smoothest, beautiful voice, man. And I just wanted to reach out and tell you that. It's only been over 50 years since we, since I saw you on it. So. 
I'm glad you're still doing it too, you know? Well, I appreciate it. You know, we had a similar thing with Strawberry Alarm Clock. We we played with the Union Gap on tour with the Beach Boys in the South. <laughs> Them as the Union Gap, and we were in the South, in the Confederate South. <laughs> you remember that? Do you remember the city? I don't. Was it Birmingham? It, it might have been. It was around the time of Martin Luther King. That was the tour we were on. It was April in 68, yeah. I think. We were uh, kind of afraid to go to the South in the beginning just because we were Yankees. And uh, we always used to see those, uh, you know, the Confederate flags and the, yeah. the, the, the bumper stickers that would say, forget hell or, you know, that kind of thing. And so when we uh, played one of the great big radio uh, promotional weeks down there, and it might have been with you guys and several others, but it was a whole week. And Alice Cooper was on one of those nights. And uh, um, at any rate, we, we, we uh, got a big Confederate flag, rolled it up laid it across the, the, the piano. And when we went on on stage, we got on either side and unfurled the flag and 6,000 people gave the rebel yell and we went, okay, we're all right. Nobody's gonna murder us. That's here. good. Yeah, the show we did with you was with Buffalo Springfield and the Beach Boys and the Buffalo Springfield had a Confederate flag behind them. <laughs> I, know, I remember that now, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tommy, I know you played down University of Georgia, right? I did, yes. Yeah, and and I played there, and I I think I was the first band that ever played there with an integrated band. Yeah, I had a couple mm -hmm. of brothers in the group, and it was we we couldn't stay in the the white hotels, and think things were way different in 1962 when we we did a tour of the South with an integrated band, so we weren't allowed to stay together in the white hotel. So I said, okay. So we went to Soulville. We stayed in, and they treated us wonderfully. It was great, yeah. and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, that happened to me in 1962 when Sheila was a hit. They booked my first tour, first big tour, was, was with Sam Cooke, and it was an all, uh, you know, colored group. It was a, a, a black band, uh, all black entertainers, except for Chris Montez and myself. I used to call Chris Mr. In-Between. They called me the token of fate. <laughs> but you know the reason the reason they always had a white act on those tours was because they couldn't eat in the restaurants and and like my gig was really to go out and sing Sheila that's uh, that's all I did open the show sing one song Sheila and the rest of the time they'd we'd be traveling in the bus and they'd park down the street at some mom and pop restaurant send me in to get sandwiches because they couldn't eat on the road and there was no, back in those days, there was no Holiday Inn or any any kind of motels. You stayed at these little mom and pop hotels where they couldn't stay in those places. And so they would they would either drop me off at one of those little hotels and they then go into the city center and they'd stay in people's houses and in churches and whatever and their own hotels. But that's the way it was back then. You know, it was like, you know, I grew up in Atlanta and, and you know, I grew up under segregation. I went to a segregated school drank out of segregated uh, water fountains, went to segregated bathrooms. And I know what segregation in, is all about. It, to, believe me, today, we don't have segregation. I mean, no, <laughs> you're right. And and it's a guy like Cousin Brucey who played all our music. And I think by 
and he played everybody's music, Sam Cooks, Ray Charles, Joey D, Tommy, and it's at infinitum. But I mean, our music, I think, brought our country more together than anything. I think our music was the deciding factor in bringing the country together. I agree. And now it's getting so divisive, and it really upsets me. I think you're absolutely right. You know, guys, in our business, too, it was like your business doing uh, recording artists on radio. We had a lot of problems, too. In those days, if you remember, they were called race records. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember early meetings, and I won't mention the call letters, but we were, it was suggested to us that we were careful with certain records that they referred to as race records. I'll go one step back. Uh, the old days when we used to have record stores, I don't know if any of you are too uh, old enough to remember record stores, but uh, <laughs> years ago, they were uh, they were segregated in record stores. The black records, the race records, were in a special section in the back. Mm-hmm. You had to go in the back to find them, even in the record stores. So look what look what has happened. And Joey, Joey, your thesis, I believe, and I swear, is absolutely correct. Music. Be the food of love. Play on. You know who said that, anybody? Music be the food of love. If music be the food of love, play on. That's a guy named Willie Shakespeare. He knew what was happening many years ago. And thanks to uh, the recording industry and love in what you guys were professing with music and distribution, radio, so be it, right? We did learn to like each other and love each other. It's still taking time, but we're winning. We're doing okay. You know, I've had a bunch of the British invasion guys on the show, the English stars. And the interesting thing is so much of their music was taking American blues, which was really not popular in this country, bringing it back to England, redoing it, and then giving it back to us. And that's what really created the the blues explosion that took place in the 60s and beyond. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, it, the blues was was appreciated by the young kids here. But, you know, I remember trying to buy blues records, even Chuck Berry. When I was in high school, you couldn't find a Chuck Berry record. No. I mean, you had to really scour the record stores to even get close to rhythm and blues, especially in the South, I guess. I, I get it, it was probably even worse in the South. But uh, we all appreciated the music, but we weren't allowed to do it, you know, so the British had the advantage of not having that stigma of racism. You know, they could take that music and redo it and, and uh, do their own version. I mean, that's what the Beatles did. When I did the tour with the Beatles, they did twist and shout. They did all of Chuck Berry's stuff. They did a lot of, you know, just uh, the, the Supremes, the, the, all of the group stuff they would do Everly brothers. But um, that that's what happened. And, and uh, the British acts that came over, the British invasion, like Joey was saying, it pushed a lot of the American acts off the charts during that period. And uh, trying to survive that that uh, phenomena of the British invasion was was really a, 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 a hard, hard task. Cousin Brucey, how did you handle that with the British invasion? Because a lot of us are your friends and you wanted to keep us, our careers going. But uh, you were limited because you had to play the hits, and these were, they were the hits. We had no choice. I remember there was a time when people would get on the air. You know, not, it wasn't only the music, guys. we got to remember one thing. 
Music, as I said, is a mirror. It reflects. They were reflecting lives. They were very smart. Uh, the music industry in those days, it was getting kind of tired. We weren't really doing anything inventive. Well, here come these guys from overseas taking our music, covering our music, but giving it a new feeling. So that, like you said, guys, they gave it back to us, right? But they gave it back to us in spades. We had to play it. You used to get people on the air that would ask for a request, and uh, the guy would get on and say something like, Hello, Sir Brucey, this is Sir Giles of Bronxshire. Would you play a record for me, me and my bird? Suddenly, everybody was speaking the King's English. You couldn't get away from it. They looked it. They loved the hair. They loved the look. So we had no no choice. What, there was a time, Joey and everybody, do you remember, that the Billboard charts had five Beatle records in a row. We were, Our hands were tied. Our hands were tied. But we tried the best we could, the best we could. And you survived. Here you are today, right? Here yeah. you are today. And we're still doing it. We're still doing it. And it's wonderful. Well, you know, in, in 1964, I was in the Army. So I was really out of, out of it for that whole year. And while I was in the Army, that's when the British invasion really took off. And I was thinking to myself, how in the hell am I going to compete with these guys when I get out of here? I've got to go in the studio and make some new records for ABC Paramount Records. And that's when I came up with the idea to do something. I had to do something so different. So that's I wrote Sweet Pea while I was in the Army. So that the whole idea was to write something so different than the British stuff and try to make it simple and fun and, you know, just fun records. And when I got out of the service, I cut Sweet Pea, and that's what kept me in the charts. That started the bubblegum thing. They called me the father of bubblegum. But really, <laughs> think about it. The early Beatle records, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and I Want to Hold Your Hand, that's the blueprint for bubblegum. I mean, I mean, what's the difference in those songs and Oh Sweet Pea, Come On and Dance With Me or Hooray for Hazel? I mean, they're all the same kind of thing. So they really had that going for them in the beginning. But, of course, their songwriting took them to another level. Well, you showed everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did. I showed them all. You did. Gary, tell everybody who your initial drum teacher was. I got a kick out of that when you talked about it. The drum um, teacher? Yeah. yeah. I, I was going to a theater arts college in Pasadena, California. And uh, twice a week, I'd go over to this music shop and get drum lessons. And uh, the teacher was Jim Keltner. <laughs> So I took lessons from Jim Keltner before I even got into music. And then when I stopped playing drums, came out front and played guitar, I hired Jim Keltner to play drums. Nice. So he, he was a playboy. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You told me a different story about your father's friend that taught you how to play the drums. Well, well yes, that goes far back. When I, when I was five years old, this this friend of my dad's always came over and said to me, hey, kid, let's go out to the drums. Let me show you some stuff. Great. Wonderful. So I'm learning all this stuff. It wasn't for seven more years that I realized this guy was Buddy Rich. <laughs> Buddy Rich gave me like lessons for seven years before I started playing. Amazing. You know that, wow. Gary, that bit on YouTube, you can find it, of your dad and Buddy Rich doing a drum off. It's the funniest thing ever. It is. That was that was really good. Yeah. That is so great. 
I want to ask you, tell us what it was like to be on the Ed Sullivan show, because you guys were on right at the middle of that whole era. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, we got booked on the Ed Sullivan show to break this diamond ring to the country. And uh, my dad says, uh, you know, people work their entire career to get on the Ed Sullivan show. And I, I said, well, okay. I'm on now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, it, it was, it was the biggest show on Sunday nights. You know, it was just the biggest show that anybody can do. Uh, if they have something to promote, beautiful to Ed Sullivan. So he asked us back six times with our first six singles. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was the best thing we could have done, you know. Thank goodness they liked us, you know. But uh, the only drawback was that when I was talking to Ed Sullivan, I had to go through his interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> you got a little of your dad in you, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, I do. All right, great. I was. I wanted to hear Mark Stein tell us about your experience. Well, you know. <clears throat> When Vanal Fights got booked on the Ed Sullivan show, man, it was like, that was the pinnacle. I mean, when you were on the Sullivan show, you made it. That was it. You were in everybody's living room. And on a Sunday night, it was 8 or 9 o'clock. I mean, you became visually known. You know, you became a household word. You know, it was just amazing. And first time we were on the show, you know, we did it with uh, Duke Ellington. And uh, it was uh, pretty amazing. And Temptations. and you know, groups and amazing people like that. And uh, I just, I, you know, Flip Wilson, I, mean, I remember after the show, you know, we, we came off really, really well because we had our, we had our English, uh, I even remember his name, Bruce Wayne. He was our sound man that we got from England where we were touring over there. And uh, he actually got into, into the Union sound booth because the cats didn't really know how to, you know, mix a heavy rock band live on the Sullivan show. So he got in there and somehow got permission to help mix us. We came off really powerful. And, you know, it just started a whole, you know, just a whole career for us at that time. Our albums jumped like 30, 40 numbers up on the charts with a bullet and cash box and billboard. And you just went out in the street and then everybody recognized it. And it was so much fun. And I'll, I'll never forget on the stage, I called my mom and dad after the first time we were on. I said, Did you see it? Wasn't it cool? And then my mom was like crying. My dad was so proud, you know, and all my friends in Bayonne and Jersey City. That's where I came from. Everybody was elated. And then Flip Wilson comes up to me and pats me on the back as I was on the payphone. But look at this kid calling his mom every he did the Sullivan show. I'll never forget that, you know. So it was a, it was a seminal moment in my life and, you know, everybody else's. So uh, what can I say? It was absolute coolness. You can imagine. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Gary Puckett, did you do the Sullivan Show too? Three times. Um, it it was uh, a little bit daunting because we didn't play live. I sang live, and um, singing live to eight and a half million people was a bit of um, a fright, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and I was quite surprised at how small the actual studio was. It, it looked 
you know, when you saw it on TV, it looked like it was a big venue and there were a lot of people, but there were maybe 35 people, you know, in the audience and they just knew how to shoot it. But uh, um, I remember them um, uh, telling Mr. Sullivan over and over again, it's Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. And you'll notice when he says it, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. <laughs> So uh, they were afraid that he might slip with my name. Oh. <laughs> hey, Bruce, Bruce, you got that funny story about you and, and uh, Ed Sullivan at the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Tell that story. Well, I think, uh, like Gary just said, uh, Mr. Sullivan was really not with it. He didn't know one hell of a, an act from the other. He <laughs> always told just <laughs> didn't know where he was. Uh when the Beatles first came out, the great story was uh, he called a, a very dear friend on news and said, did you ever hear uh, you ever hear of a group called the Beatles? And the guy said to him, it's a very famous story, which I used to play audio of. And they, you'd hear the uh, news announcer say, hey, Mary, that's his daughter. Did you ever hear of a group called the Beatles? And they go, what? She was screaming. The child had to tell him about the Beatles. But my story with him is that we were at Shea Stadium at 65 when we're, where he and I are introducing the Beatles and we're walking up home base, up the scaffolding, as I called it, up the stairs. And he turned around to me and there's 65,000 people screaming, girls, wild, absolutely wild. You can feel the pressure. And uh, he turned around to me and said, hey, Cousin Mercy, is this dangerous? Now, I never really particularly loved that sort of because I knew he didn't know what the hell he was doing. You know, he was like, not, I just, you know, just, it wasn't my kind of guy. I, I know he didn't respect the music because he didn't know it. And I knew I had him. And he said to me, uh, what should we do? And I looked at him with my eyes and he had his big bulging eyes. And I said, Ed, pray. He looked <laughs> at me and said, pray? He, I said, yeah. I said, I think we're in trouble. I know I wanted to get him a little bit. Anyway, we walked up, introduced the Beatles. And that day, guys, as you remember, Nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. I was asked to uh, patrol with the uh, NYPD and the security people, and people were just there to have a great time to be in love with the Beatles. But he was scared stiff, never understood it, never understood the Beatles. And to this day, I always remember him looking at me, what do we do? And I said to him, pray. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a happy camper. <laughs> I want to thank you all so much for being on this podcast. It's been just fantastic to sit back, listen to you all, hear all these great stories. And the message that's coming through loud and clear is just how fortunate we all are that you guys were where you were at that time and the music that you made. It's just been totally fantastic. So in no particular order, I want to thank Joey D. I want to thank uh, Gary Lewis. George Bunnell, Gary Puckett, Tommy Rowe, Mark Stein, and of course, Cousin Brucey. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Enjoyed it. Keep on rocking. It's really good. Remember, we just didn't make music, folks. We made history. Right. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. <laughs>